You're listening to WO Voices, a podcast series from Women in Optometry magazine. I'm Marjolyn Bailefeld, editor of Women in Optometry. We're delighted you can join us. Welcome. We're here today with Carla Zadnick, OD, PhD, FAAO. Dr. Zadnick is the Dean at the Ohio State University College of Optometry and the Glenn Fry Professor of Optometry and Physiological Optics. Welcome, Dr. Zadnick. Thanks so much. It's lovely to be here. It's so it's so great to have you here. Your honors and leadership and contributions to scholarly research are very impressive. But if someone Googles your name without the OD attached, they're going to be very likely to come up with all kinds of hits and images on a selection of stunning quilts that you've made, designed, and shown. Tell us a little bit about this quilting hobby of yours. I took up quilting in 1998. I'd moved to Ohio State two years prior, and I decided I wanted to take up a hobby that would enable me to meet women that I didn't work with. So it was quite literally sort of a social thing, and I thought, oh, I'll meet a lot of kind of cool women. Long story short, now lots of women I work with also quilt, (laughs) but I also have a community of quilters in Columbus, Ohio, which is big quilting country. And it's a hobby that just enriches my life immensely. I enjoy, I've always enjoyed sewing, but this is a way of sewing where nothing has to fit anybody. Uh And if you start to make a king size quilt and you get bored with that particular pattern, it's up to you. You could make it a baby quilt if you wanted to. Right. Just this year, I actually had a quilt published in a quilting magazine, a peer-reviewed quilting magazine, and I've added it to my CV under other peer-reviewed publications. So I always think, how deep is somebody going to read to find that particular publication? And I think I'm as proud of it as many of my major scientific publications, crazy as that sounds. Well, I think I saw the picture of that one and the colors are spectacular and the little houses on there are lovely. And maybe we'll we'll add a photo of that one to, oh, to this story because it's uh, it's so great. Um, now, you grew up immersed in optometry. I've read that your paternal grandfather was an optometrist. That is correct. Oh, wow. So and he practiced inside his house. He practiced up in, yes, he ended his career in Stowe, Ohio. I grew up in Kent, Ohio, and he practiced in Stowe. And my dad actually built a home for him, the upstairs of which he lived in with uh, first my grandmother and then his second wife after my grandmother passed. And the downstairs, the basement, was his optometric practice. That house is still on a residential street in Stowe, Ohio, and it still has a weird driveway where you go up the hill and then there's parking spots. I don't know that they still have stripes on the parking spots. And he used to display his frames in an old Hoosier cabinet. If you're familiar with that. I have that cabinet and my dad used to hide in it when he was a little boy. And that cabinet is currently in my kitchen serving its original purpose. So was that where your interest in optometry started or how did that come about? 
that grandfather was a pretty interesting guy, it turned out. And I don't think I knew how interesting until I myself became an optometrist. He invented things. I have his original patent for a retinoscope bulb. He invented a, an acrobat target that a kid could squeeze the bulb of and they, across the room, the acrobat would do tricks and positions. And he thought, prior to being able to dilate pupils and cycloplege children, that that activity would keep kids focused well at distance better than even what we do now with their watching a cartoon or a movie at the end of the room. So he, he was an inventor. He never made very much money being an optometrist. So none of his three sons wanted to pursue that career. And after my grandmother passed, he actually married a woman who was completely blind. And so my mother helped take care of her as well as of him late in his life. And as a teenager, I just romanticized that aspect of his life. And he died when I was 16. And I very dramatically declared that I was going to be an optometrist. And I never looked back. I used wow. to clean trial lenses. He'd pay me a nickel a lens to use a lens cloth and clean his trial lenses. And I'm convinced I got my first myopic glasses when I was probably like minus an eighth of a diopter. I think he, the first moment I showed any myopia, boom, I had those cat eye light blue glasses on my face. So he was just this, this larger than life person, I think, in my life as a kid and sort of a middle schooler. And it really did change the, I don't know what I would have been otherwise, but it, it sort of set the trajectory of my life and career. That's fantastic. And uh, 16 is, is young, but obviously long enough to make a real impression on you too. Um, so, so when did the interest in, in academia kind of uh, reveal itself to you? Most people want to know why I didn't end up going to optometry school at Ohio State. Well, my dad, the day after I graduated from high school, the moving van showed up and he moved us to Santa Barbara, California. He had taken early retirement from his job and decided life was too short to live in Ohio. So we moved to California and I went to undergrad at the University of California, Santa Barbara, and then applied to a couple of other places, but got into the University of California, Berkeley. And I was a good student. I, I, I thought optometry school was hard, but I challenging. I felt like I was a good student and I was good at the clinical aspects. And literally when I graduated from optometry school, I kind of dramatically said, the last thing I would do in my entire life would be a PhD in physiological optics. So I took a job at the University of California, Davis, in the Department of Ophthalmology, where I worked for six years. And after about five years, it was a long commute. And I was starting to think that the clinical care I was delivering was getting more routine. So it's like, oh, ho-hum, another herpes simplex keratitis is coming in today. And at that time, Tony Adams, who was the um, future dean at University of California Berkeley School of Optometry at the time, got in touch with me and made a really hard pitch about coming back to graduate school. <laughs> and by then at Davis, I'd started to publish a couple of papers with some collaborators there. And once that idea got into my head, that pledge that it would be the last thing I would ever do sort of fell away. And I got more and more intrigued. I also realized 
that if I stayed in a department of ophthalmology, the glass ceiling was right over my head, not mm-hmm. because I was a woman, but because I was an optometrist. Mm-hmm. You know, I would never, I couldn't be a department chair. I certainly would never have been dean of a, of a medical school. Mm-hmm. And I made a decision that the, I thought the PhD from Berkeley would open all the doors I knew I wanted opened and maybe even some that I didn't know were there to open. So it was a combination of being in this academic environment, Tony making this pitch, there being an, a National Institutes of Health training grant spot open, and it was the timing was just right. But I'd been out of school six years before I went back for, to graduate school. Right, right. And probably brought you back to graduate school with a little more, uh, with a little, certainly with a different perspective, too. Um, and and so the lore of Ohio was strong enough to, to get you back there. <laughs> I finished my PhD in 1992, and then I had some. I had two grants, so I was funded by my grants. I competed unsuccessfully for a faculty position at my alma mater, and then Ohio State started to knock on the door. And when I came to Ohio State for an interview, I interviewed a couple of times before, but I came for an interview and the purpose of the interview was going to be to tell Ohio State that I was going to ply my fortune at Berkeley, whatever that meant um, in whatever role there. And one of the founders of Ohio State Optometry, Glenn Fry, a familiar name to many, had passed away and his funeral was the weekend of my interview. And I remember everybody th- everybody was going to go to the funeral, right? Who was interviewing me. And I remember people saying, well, what are we going to do with you? And they said, do you have anything black to wear? It's like, yeah, I'm here for an interview. I have black clothes with me. Yes. So I went to his funeral. And between the anecdotal fry stories that the faculty were telling and the moving, what a wonderful man he was that his neighbors were telling, I sat in this Presbyterian church in Columbus, Ohio, and felt as if someone was throwing a baton up in the air, and I was supposed to be there to catch it. And it was literally that almost a almost a one minute I was staying at Berkeley, and the next minute at this funeral, I was coming to Ohio State. That's uh, that's that's amazing. And your tenure at Ohio State has has obviously been an impressive one. You uh, became the the first woman dean of the uh, College of Optometry, um, the first woman dean of a of a public institution uh, of optometry, and um, and and this time the at least that glass ceiling wasn't wasn't really in your way, was it? I think the timing was right. So my predecessor as dean was Mel Ship, and I had the um, wonderful opportunity to serve for ten years as the associate dean here. First, the associate dean of research and graduate studies, and then that expanded to include associate dean for academic affairs. And for a few years, I did both those jobs, and that was such a great opportunity to learn all sides of a place like Ohio State Optometry or Berkeley Optometry. Um, there are a few that operate in this, those same ways. It was a wonderful way to learn that. And then when the opportunity came up, when Mel was ready to retire after two terms, it, it just seemed like the right place to stay and to see if I could continue the good work that Mel and I had done together. And I like to think that 
it's been a pretty successful run so far. That's fantastic. Um, in the fall of, of 2020, when the COVID-19 pandemic was shattering just about everything, you became our Women in Optometry Thea Award uh, recipient for, for mentoring. Um, that year, we had to have people send in a video of their acceptance speeches. And I remember popping yours open on, on my screen when it arrived. And there's Arthur the Aardvark right behind you. <laughs> and that made such an impression on me that that would be in your office, because it's such a clear indication that kids are important and kids' vision is important. And uh, um, how did that, how did your interest in children's vision bloom to the point where it is now? Well, first I'll tell you the Arthur story. So uh -huh. Arthur is especially near and dear to my heart because when we were, were doing our Arinda longitudinal study of myopia in the early years, we were trying to recruit children. And so we would go into first grade classrooms, our study team, and we would read them Arthur's eyes. And then we would help them make pipe cleaner glasses, little pretend pipe cleaner glasses and by the end of it, when we gave the teacher the consent and information about the study materials to send home with the children, the children knew us, the teachers knew us. So Arthur was kind of our ambassador <laughs> to enable us to recruit children in that community-based study. So I myself am a minus eight diopter myope. That same grandfather tried some various sort of basin prism on me and a variety of different prescriptions. Maybe I was supposed to be a minus 16, but anyway, I'm a minus eight. And so when it came time to decide what research to do in graduate school, a simpler path would probably have been to do contact lens research, corneal physiology, because that's what I'd been doing mostly at the University of California, Davis. And Tony Adams had this idea that there was research to be done in juvenile onset myopia. And I remember I went to lunch with Michael Harris, a venerable faculty member at UC Berkeley, and asked him which of those two paths he would choose. And he said, he was a contact lens person, mind you, and he said, I think you ought to try that myopia thing. <laughs> And so I decided to do that. I, my, most of my experience with children up until then had been performing vision screenings for the local optometric society. And we started that study and suddenly we're spending all day, every day with a bunch of school-aged children. And I found I was good at it and I liked it. And really the, the dedicating a career to trying to determine the risk factors for and now treatments for myopia has been incredibly rewarding, uh, both intellectually and emotionally. And how fortuitous, really. I mean, you know, to, to, to be presented with this option when you were uh, really at the, the, the very beginning of, of kind of when, when onset of myopia becomes, well, it's a different conversation now than it was then. It's, it's, it's almost not the same. <laughs> so how, um, you know, what do, what do you want people to know? What do you want students to know uh, about myopia and the, the importance of, ch of children's vision? I think our works, our study, the CLEAR study and the Arena Longitudinal Study might be before it. I think our work's primary contribution has been to that risk factor profile. 
And myopia is interesting because if you believe that the major risk factor is all about near work, there's not too much to do about it. You're not going to start a public campaign to keep kids from learning to read or from reading on devices. And so the thing we found that was a complete surprise to us in the Arinda study was that children who had spent more time outside, out of doors, as reported by their parents, before their myopia onset age, were less likely to develop myopia in the first place. So here was a, a risk factor, an environmental risk factor, that in fact you could modify. And you could modify it in a way that not only were you perhaps decreasing the children's risk for myopia, you were getting them out of doors and they were probably getting exercise and all the things we were used to as children that perhaps had become uh, less common in those years. I have a, I have a two-year-old grandson. Uh, his mom is myopic. Dad is not. Dad's a stay-at-home dad. And he gets that baby out for two hours a day, every day, an hour walk in the morning, an hour walk in the evening. They live in Los Angeles. And I said, you know, you're doing a good job at, I think, preventing myopia for August. And he says, well, that's why I'm doing it. I've read everything you've written. I was so touched. It was like, oh my gosh. And so I love to think about work, research having real impact on real people that are sitting in optometrists chairs. So every time an optometrist is discussing myopia with a parent and talks about treatment options, but also mentions, and you know, we have evidence that it really would be good for your child to get out of doors periodically as much as, as much as 14 hours a week. You know, if I could hear every one of those conversations, I would just be so proud of the work we've done and the way it's been disseminated and accepted by the optometric and ophthalmologic communities. Um, that's that's you. I mean, isn't that isn't that amazing to have a, a piece of advice that was so academically achieved right? <laughs> become become this amplified statement that is repeated, you know, in parenting magazines, in optometry offices, and I, I hope in pediatric offices. So that's that's really a, that's really a, a remarkable legacy, actually. Just those those few words. And then more recently, uh, Viluma Incorporated, it was then Nevacar when they first approached me, gave me the opportunity as dean to be the principal investigator for a major uh, U.S. and European study of low-dose atropine. And I'm of the belief that it's hard to be a dean and do your own active research program. There just aren't enough hours in the day. But the idea of doing really my kind of my almost first ever industry work on a well-controlled, well-done, ethical trial of low-dose atropine really appealed to me and also seemed like that next logical step. Okay, now we know how we might be able to prevent it in some children. We know how, how to identify it. Now, what if we could treat it? What if we could slow the progression of myopia? So that opportunity too was like a serendipity. I feel, I feel like when I think about my career, it is just sort of this serendipitous event after serendipitous event. And all I happened to be was in the right place at the right time. And, that, and the baton got, got tossed up in the air and I caught it 
and and did what was appropriate at that particular time. Right. Well, you reached for it. Yeah. <laughs> you didn't just let it drop in front of you. You <laughs> there was there was action and intentionality there. So <laughs> that's a that's a wonderful story. I love I love hearing those stories, and um, it's it's great. I can you can almost hear that you're a quilter, right? Because you're you're bringing these pieces together to make a, a, a pattern out of your, out of your career, out of the impact that optometry can have on, on uh, children's vision. Um, and, and obviously out of your very cool quilts. That's a lovely connection for you to make. <laughs> that warms my heart. <laughs> Dr. Zadnik, you mentioned a, a grandson. So this is, you balance not only the work that you do with the hobbies that you have, but also with raising a family. I got married two weeks before I went to optometry school at Berkeley, and I am still married to the same guy 44 (laughs) years later, Kurt Zadnick, who's actually the managing editor of Optometry and Vision Science, the Academy's journal, and he's done that for years. And then we have two daughters, um, Andra Gino, lives in LA, works for Netflix, and has the grandson August. And I had her while I was working at University of California, Davis, but I intentionally waited three years because I was afraid the men that I worked with would say, oh, you hire a young woman and she just has a baby right away. So I deliberately waited three years. And then Nina Zadnik, my second daughter, she was um, born while I was a PhD student. So I literally had a pack and play set up in my PhD office for a period of time. And often people tell you that's impossible. It's not. You can make things work. I, I, I was firmly committed to the idea of a, a family and work-life juggling, if not balance. And I, um, each of those daughters has a grandson, and that's a lovely phase of life to be in now as well. That's wonderful. And do you feel like you had to uh, to? maybe not compromise, but sacrifice one or the other? I mean, it sounds like you you feel like you were able to achieve both uh, family and career pursuit. My daughters might give you a different answer, (laughs) remembering their childhood. I certainly worked hard, but my approach was to incorporate the family into work life. So my daughters would tell you that I have taught ethics and biomedical research every Monday evening at 5.30 p.m. for many, many years. And I used to teach it around my dining room table because that would get me home. And then I'd be home when class ended rather than having to commute after that. My older daughter commuted 65 miles each way with me to UC Davis until she was three. So my approach throughout was always not to separate you know, work and personal life but to try to keep everything all interdigitated. And that's worked for me. For some people that doesn't, but that certainly worked from my point of view to be able to have both sides of the equation. Dr. Zadnick, it has been such a a pleasure talking with you. Oh, Marjolaine, this was just wonderful. Thank you for the opportunity and, I, you always entered this kind of thing with a bit of trepidation and you've made it just comfortable and wonderful. Thank you very, very much. 
Thank you for listening. I hope you join us again on WO Voices. If you'd like to be a guest on the series, please send us an email at wovoicesonline at gmail.com, through our website at womeninoptometry.com, through Facebook at WO Magazine, or through Twitter or Instagram at WomenODs. See you next time.